0: This episode is sponsored by our friends at YCharts. Thousands of financial advisors, asset managers, and investors rely on YCharts to develop insights, make smarter investment decisions, and effectively communicate with prospects and clients. With industry-leading tools, you're empowered to create compelling visuals that emphasize the strengths of your investment strategies. For more information, start a free trial at YCharts.com or follow on Twitter at YCharts. Now, we hope you enjoy this episode of the 7 Investing Podcast.
1: Hello, and welcome to this edition of our Seven Investing podcast, where it's our mission to empower you to invest in your future. I'm Seven Investing founder and CEO Simon Erickson, and I don't think I'm surprising anyone when I say that 2022 has been a challenging year for the stock market and also for most investors. But are there ways to see this coming? Are there ways to see market declines developing before they actually come? We're going to be chatting about that topic today. I'm very excited to welcome Connor Kitko from Whitecharts. He is Whitecharts' Director of Product Marketing. Connor, Whitecharts is a product that I use every single day. I am genuinely a
0: big fan of. Really nice to have you on the program here with Seven Investing today. Thank you, Simon. Excited to be here and excited to hear that you're using Whitecharts often.
1: Uh, Connor, you uh, also recently wrote a white paper. It was entitled "Which Leading Indicators Best Predict Market Declines." The perfect topic for what we're going to be chatting about here today, but maybe at the 10,000-foot level, as you were writing this white paper, what were a couple of the things that led you to it or that you found as kind of the key takeaways from it?
0: Absolutely. So I think not just this year or the last few years. At any point in time, every investor is trying to have that forward-looking view of the market and understand what might be coming next. But on our end, on YCharts, you know, we're a, a data and investment research platform. And we've noticed a lot of these leading indicators and economic data in general has become much more popular and much more important over the last couple of years. No no uh, questions about it because of the picture with inflation right now and the Fed's involvement in you know, setting rates and how that's impacting the market. It's definitely top of mind for a lot of investors and professionals. And so... Our question was: As we notice more people looking at this uh, leading indicator data, what really stands out is there a single indicator that can be relied on uh, very consistently for that forward-looking guidance? Uh, and we went all the way back to 1950 to to gauge seven different indicators how accurate and consistent they are for exactly that predicting you know a major sell-off in in the equity markets.
1: Yeah, that's perfect, Connor. And I wanted to dig into these, actually all seven of them, uh, keeping in mind our audience is individual investors. the so retail investors, we may or may not be making 50 tab spreadsheets that are tracking everything from GDP to uh, everything else you might want to track of the, the macro economy out there. But I do like that these are digestible. And like you said, there's seven of them that we can look at. Uh, let's start at the least reliable of the seven that you looked at, the least correlated to market declines but I'm certain that this is one that's popular, at least for a lot of people looking at this. And that's just the straight up the S&P 500's PE ratio. Uh, What is this and what did you find about it in terms of correlating to market declines?
0: Yeah, so we're talking about PE ratio at the whole market level or the S&P 500 level. So uh, you're familiar with the price paid for earnings per share. That's what PE ratio is. So essentially, how many dollars are investors paying for $1 of earnings from all S&P 500 companies? And typically, uh, it's considered that as the S&P 500 ratio, uh, P-E ratio increases, then you would expect uh, valuations are higher and therefore lower returns in the future. Now, in terms of just correlation to forward S&P 500 returns over one, three, and five years, we found that there's really not very strong correlation. Uh, a lot of other indicators, especially over that three and five year range, you saw uh, you know more tightly uh, correlated values for forward returns and what those indicators were saying at a given point in time. Uh, and that just wasn't the case with with the PE ratio. I think that that is probably uh, impacted by just the state of valuations in the market. Right now, we've seen valuations obviously uh, move higher. That's why we're having this conversation. But I think that P-E ratio is just so subject to, you know, those prices that it's not robust enough to be uh, very accurate over the long term, especially with just a new environment for P-E ratios and valuations. uh, It's much different today than it was 10 years ago or even a couple decades ago.
1: Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Even though it's not that accurate and it wasn't that highly correlated, Connor, I know that you guys wrote in the white paper that the P.E. ratio of the S&P at the time was around 29.3. Given that that's not too highly correlated, but still, where does that stand in a historical context? Is that higher than we typically see the S&P P.E. ratio at, which would mean it would be predictive of a decline if we were just looking at this metric?
0: yeah so it definitely is higher it's slightly higher over the last year than its historical average historical average going back to uh let's see here the the 80s is about 24. so we've actually just come back down below that long-term average however if we looked at just since 2000 like we said that average level would be much higher and therefore uh perhaps just such as the nature of these relative indicators, when you're comparing it against its own historical value, uh, that's going to change as new figures roll in. Um, So it is anticipated, you know, forward estimates say that the P-E ratio will continue to go down, which would be a good thing for uh, equity investors, but to be determined, and as we said, not very correlated, so um, perhaps not a lot of weight should be put behind that number coming down as it's expected to.
1: The second indicator you looked at was also, in your opinion, not that highly correlated to declines, but it was the S&P's CAPE ratio, the cyclically adjusted PE ratio. What's a little bit different from that, from the the, the standard and traditional PE ratio?
0: Right. So the Schiller CAPE ratio, cyclically adjusted PE. uh, What's different between just that standard PE is that you're looking at a 10-year uh, average of earnings, and those are inflation-adjusted as well. So uh, I think that this definitely it, comparing, it's more robust. It's considering a few more factors than just the straight-up PE ratio. Uh, and we actually did see that over the, the three and five-year uh, forward returns, that the CAPE ratio actually was uh, quite correlated to forward S&P 500 returns. Uh, Still in the short term, over the next year, uh, you know, it's probably not going to give you a great indication of where uh, the S&P is heading, but when you have that longer view, uh, things do start to clean up in terms of the correlation. And then one thing I will note about the CAPE ratio as well is uh, we talked a lot about accuracy and consistency in predicting these declines. So it was relatively consistent, especially since 2000. Whenever this CAPE ratio moved well beyond its own historical average, uh, a market decline of 10% or greater has followed quite consistently since the late 90s. However, in terms of uh, accuracy, you know, those warning signals of overvaluation are coming anywhere from eight months to, you know, a couple years uh, ahead of time. And so the average is actually about three years. Like you would get this warning from the CAPE ratio, but then you might not see that major decline come for another two and a half, three years. Not very usable for uh, most investors if they're trying to, again, where's the market heading in the next 12 to 36 months. Hard hard to use that and, and be confident in the timing of that signal. makes a lot of sense.
1: So 10 years,
0: inflation adjusted,
1: this is a relevant indicator, it is predictive, but the accuracy and the timing is very, very challenging. Um, You mentioned Schiller, you know, Robert Schiller, obviously a really big fan of this, has published a lot of uh, work related to the cyclically adjusted PE ratio. You you noted in the paper that it was at 24, is that high uh, at the time being, at least in a historical context?
0: Yes, uh, So. The cyclically adjusted, the CAPE ratio bottomed out at about 13.3 after uh, the 08 financial crisis. And then more recently, it was down to about 24, 25 right after COVID and that March 2020 crash. Uh, we rode all the way up to highs of about 40 for this mm-hmm. CAPE ratio at the beginning of 2022. And the level has since come down. But over the long term, uh, you know, something around 15 or 16 is really the long term average. And so we're close to double that right now.
1: Very interesting. Still very high. And of course, for anyone watching, a lower P.E. means you're getting a more attractive valuation on the stock market or on the S&P as a whole. Uh, The third indicator that you all looked at, Connor, was the S&P 500's earnings growth. Uh, Just are earnings positive or negative? Tell us a little bit about that
0: indicator. Right. So just looking at earnings at the aggregate level across all 500 constituents and then saying, is this level higher this month compared to 12 months ago? Um, And again, not a ton of correlation, especially over the short term. However, uh, some of the extremes, you know, when we saw uh, very negative year over year earnings growth or very positive year over year earnings growth, those actually did uh, correlate to better or worse returns. But, um, you know, this, this S&P 500 earnings data, it's generally uh, lagging quite a bit. So our most recent data point is from March of this year. Uh, and therefore, it's perhaps not, uh, again, it doesn't fit into most people's process to be looking at data that is a few months stale in that nature. But, you uh, this earnings per share across all of the uh, S&P 500 stocks as of March 22, up to far and away a record high, nearly $200 uh, earnings per share. And you know that is a, uh, a function of prices and earnings moving in opposite directions. However, uh, even just as recently as the onset of COVID in 2022, this level was just shy of 100, uh, so around, uh, you know, a double, a 100% increase over the last uh, 18 months to two years. So, um, you know, that earnings growth is great to see, and that should, again, if you follow this, it would translate then to higher prices. But uh, we've seen that, you know, there really wasn't that strong of a reaction when this number goes positive or negative, uh, in terms of what the S and P 500 does next,
1: certainly, certainly a lot of short-term trading around those earnings numbers and year-over-year comparisons. Okay, yeah. so those first three, you know, all S and P 500 related: the P/E ratio, the cyclically adjusted P/E ratio, the earnings growth of the of the 500 largest market constituents. The fourth one is oh. one that might be a little less familiar. To most people. It's the Tobin's Q score, which is a replacement cost of companies' assets. Tell us a little bit about that indicator
0: and what you find. Right. So the replacement cost of all companies' assets in the S&P. And so I believe you can look at Tobin's Q on an individual company level as well. So extrapolating that out to 500 companies, I think people get a little intimidated by Tobin's Q because replacement cost sounds so simple, but there's a lot of math that goes into that. And, um, you know, it, it, uh, it was really interesting to see because this was one that maybe wasn't as consistent for every single uh, decline that we saw in the market. It wasn't as consistent at predicting those declines. But at the very extremes over the one, three, and five-year forward return, so if Tobin's Q is at this level, what historically has the S&P 500 done – over the subsequent one, three and five years, very strong correlations based on these scatter plots that we put together. Uh, so you can very easily see this line of best fit. And at those very extreme values, when Tobin's Q has been uh, you know, close to one and a half or two, it, and it's higher Tobin's Q value, you know, it's regarded that as above one, if you would be paying more for the actual replacement costs of all these companies' assets, that would signal overvaluation. So when Tobin's Q was up to levels close to one and a half and two, we almost always saw uh, negative forward returns over the subsequent three and five years. However, or or, I mean, not however, in addition, uh, very low Tobin's Q values uh, below 0.5, always saw typically positive returns following over the subsequent three to five years. And uh, I assume that your next question, Simon, is going to be, where's Tobin's Q right now? And it was as late as uh, as recently as the end of 2021. It was up to one point seven five. So that's very much in line. uh, If you just use that one uh, anecdote, Tobin's Q reached one point seven five. And then now the market is down year to date pretty substantially. As that uh, movement has been incorporated into the metric, you know Tobin's Q is now down to 1.31, mm-hmm. and this is another metric that, while it is regarded that one is the threshold above is overvaluation and below one is undervaluation, we did look as well as kind of that more modern threshold. We added like a 20% premium to say, uh, you know, this is an alarm that would be hard to ignore. And then looked at its accuracy in predicting those declines, and that really did prove that since uh, since 2000, uh, Tobin's Q exceeding those thresholds is a great warning sign for for impending declines.
1: And it's still like we're not out of the woods with this one, right? If we're at 1.3 today, you've you've put the threshold at 1.2. At least by this indicator, the market is by is still far from being cheap. Uh, or at least returning back to positive returns, at least to the Ch- Tobin Q score,
0: right? That's correct. And and I'll some historical context. You know, Tobin's Q. There's a lot of great historical data uh, uh, around this metric. However, uh, it really spiked right around the dot com bubble, and uh, it has remained very consistently above a level of 0.8 ever since uh, that happened. Uh, only going below 0.8 at the end of 2008. So I think it's one thing to get used to with all of these metrics is that, um, you know, that look-back period that you're considering is very important because uh, these metrics are just different beasts today than they were 40, 50 years ago.
1: And, and you perfectly predicted my first question, Connor, which is perfect that we're talking about predictive indicators here today. Which is where do we stand today? My, my follow-up, I think you're already getting me in the segue to that too. But is the S and P 500 itself um, changing? Are the constituents changing from being hard asset companies like GE and manufacturers and Exxon's with oil wells, you know, that are out there, to being more tech companies like Amazon and Apple?
0: Does that have any influence on the Tobin's Q score? Absolutely. I I, I think. I'll just look through. I just pulled up on Y charts as you started asking this question, top holdings for the S and P 500. No uh, surprises here, but Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, Tesla alphabet, Uh, not until you get to Berkshire Hathaway, United health and Johnson and Johnson. Are we talking about those kind of hard asset companies? Like you said, and maybe even Berkshire Hathaway as a conglomerate, Uh, you know, putting that aside, um, the valuations uh, for companies without uh, revenue and the way that those have broken into the top levels of these market-based indexes. Uh, And then also just what is their, what comprises of their assets, like you mentioned, are we talking about, you know, real bolded to the ground PP&E or are we talking about intellectual property and stuff like that? So um, it is an interesting one just as those companies, uh, their revenues, their, you know, their business models, their revenue structures, what they hold in terms of assets, their debt structures, all those things are definitely impacting, I think, um, the current market dynamics compared to the old.
1: Well, there's four down. We've got three to go. Uh, you know, I don't know how, how it is for you, Connor, but in my world, I cannot go a single day without hearing Jerome Powell said at least 10 to 20 times in conversation. It seems like we're all focusing on interest rates right now, and actually the fifth indicator is the yield spread between the 10-year note and the 2-year note. It's a 10 yield spread. Uh, this is, of course, the difference between the interest rates being paid by the 10-year Treasury and the 2-year Treasury. Um, we actually can see that go negative and invert, which is
0: something we did see earlier this year for a short amount of time. Tell us a little bit about this indicator. Absolutely. So this is, you know, the 10-year to two-year yield spread, and we'll talk about another spread, I'm sure, shortly. Um, Particularly interesting, in my opinion, because we've talked a lot about correlation to those forward returns, and these metrics are not very correlated at all. And I think that comes down to the fact that it doesn't matter what the value is as long as it's above zero when we're looking at these, these yield spreads. You know, obviously tightening markets or loosening markets is one thing, but um, because we're just considering, okay, it's very binary, positive or negative, the actual level of the spread over time might vary widely while still being positive. So we actually saw pretty weak correlations to those forward returns However, the second part of our analysis of our analysis was looking at those warning signals. So when one of these spreads goes negative, when this 10 year to two year spread goes negative, what happens with, um, you know, U.S. equities following? And these are also largely considered economic indicators. Uh, You know, people look at the spreads to determine if we're going into a recession, first and foremost. Mm -hmm. And we know the stock market is not the economy, but. Uh, we all feel and, and see the stock market I think more tangibly as investors and so since uh, you know 1978 the when this yield spread goes negative the 10 to two year spread uh, major market decline has followed 10.5 months after that uh, inversion occurs and that's uh, over since 1978 it has accurately predicted, Almost half of those major market declines of 10% or more. So
1: that's the S&P 500 decline. Uh, the an s 500 decline. What? Correct. Okay.
0: Yeah. And so it is interesting because you—you—I um, I just noted even just half of these major market declines, it gave a uh, an accurate warning for. So take that with a grain of salt. However, that 10 10.5 month warning window. Uh, I think is much more um, actionable for investors because they can say, "Okay, if the market's going to top in 10 months, I have, you know, a little bit more insight into uh, how to position myself versus talking about three, five years down the road.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And for anyone listening, you know, might not be as familiar with uh, what inversion means or negative spreads means. This means that the two-year note is paying a higher interest rate than the 10-year note is. Uh, rates have gone up so quickly in such a short amount of time that it inverts the curve. That's very rare. As Connor was mentioning, it certainly has an impact for the S&P 500s returns. Uh, we didn't talk as much about the economy as a, as a whole, but it's also very predictive of recessions as well as the economy tries to catch up with rising interest rates over a short period of time. Uh, Speaking of indicators, you know, you you, correctly uh, uh, predicted that I was going to ask this next one, which is we just talked about the 10- and 2-year spread. How about the
0: 10-year and 3-month-year yield spread? That's actually the sixth indicator you have on your list. Exactly. And I think that um, most people, I think the 10- to 2-year is traditionally the more popular of these yield spreads. Um, And as you noticed, as you commented, Simon, this is just like a breaking down of how interest rates are supposed to work. If you tie up your money for longer, you should be rewarded more. If you tie up your money for shorter periods of time, you should be rewarded less. But that's not what that's not what's happening with these uh, government treasuries. And so the 10 to three month is a little uh, more nascent, I'd say, than the 10 to two year spread. However, it was actually a superior predictor of uh, those major declines. And if I get back to my table here, uh, it was – I double-click
1: on that, Connor? You said that the superior predictor was the 10-year and 3-month spread as compared to the 10-to-2. Did I hear that
0: right? That's correct. And so no. you are actually, with the 10-year to 3-month spread, uh, slightly more uh, accuracy. So 16 uh, major market declines for the S&P 500, a 10% or more drawdown. Uh, It predicted 50% of those declines of the 16 major market declines. The warning that it gives is actually a little bit more advanced than the 10 year to two year spread. So this gave a 12 month, uh, a 12.8 month warning, whereas the 10 year to two year spread gave that 10 and a half month warning. So slightly more notice, slightly more accurate in terms of that warning sign being followed by uh, a major market decline. Great,
1: okay, we hear a lot about yield spreads. Those are certainly uh, a popular topic of conversation here. Let's go to the seventh, the final, the most accurate, the most relevant and highly correlated to market declines. It is the Buffett indicator. Uh, no doubt named after Warren Buffett. I know Warren Buffett, but I'm less familiar with this indicator. What can you tell us about this one, Connor?
0: Yeah, so the Buffett indicator, uh, if you're looking for it within Y-charts, it's just called uh, S&P 500 market, market capitalization as a percentage of U.S. GDP, gross domestic product. So Warren Buffett, you know, he has uh, – his name has been – slapped on this indicator. I don't know if he gave permission for that, but he has been quoted saying that this was, in his opinion, the single best uh, indicator of where valuations stand at any point in time. And very similar to the Tobin's Q, which we discussed, uh, this indicator would say that if the market capitalization of all companies is greater than the GDP of the United States, then the market is overvalued, uh, and that uh, I think this one is is interesting for kind of comparing those or, or involving both the market uh, piece with the market capitalization and the economic component uh, with gross domestic product. Uh, but this Buffett indicator very strong correlations over the three and five year forward looking returns for the S and P five hundred albeit not as correlated over the short term. And then again, since 2000, since 1999, in fact, uh, it has only missed one major market decline uh, of the, I think it looks like 11 uh, or nine or 10 that we looked at since 99. So very consistent uh, when this Buffett indicator moves beyond those critical thresholds, uh, a market decline tends to follow.
1: And where do we stand with this right
0: now? How does the Buffett indicator look comparing market caps versus uh, GDP today? It's a, it's a great question, and particularly because um, that one potential drawback with this metric is that uh, it has remained very elevated uh, since COVID and even sometime before COVID, uh, since about 2015 or 16. Uh, it's broken that 120 percent level. And traditionally, 100% is that critical threshold. So it has remained, uh, I guess, in warning mode for some period of time. However, uh, part of our research process was to add a slightly higher threshold to say this is a warning sign you you could not ignore. And, uh, you know, the Buffett indicator right now at 151% as of the end of June 2022. So... Market capitalization is 150% higher than GDP. We've also seen now those two negative quarters of GDP growth. So I think even though, um, you know, it'll be interesting to see what happens next, uh, what moves by a greater degree if GDP continues to fall, but prices in the market also continue to fall, um, then we'll see what happens with the Buffett indicator going forward.
1: Yeah, fantastic. Well, there's the seven indicators, Connor. Like we mentioned, you know, from the less predictive to the more predictive, we had the S&P 500 P/E ratio, the S&P 500 cyclically adjusted P/E ratio, the S&P 500's earnings growths, the Tobin's Q score, looking at replacement costs of assets, the 10 and two-year yield spread, the 10-year and three-month yield spread. And then the Buffett indicator. I mean, just to tie this all together now, Connor, you know, seven investing, we're, we're looking at businesses. We, we are investing into businesses we want to hold for the long term. And certainly, stock market returns follow one of three things generally fundamentals growth are the growing earnings and revenues and all the fundamentals of the business. The valuation multiples that the market is willing to give them is it elevated? Is it, is it, um, more of a pessimistic view of it, and then dividends. And I think that, you know, all of this conversation, or at least a lot of it, kind of goes back to, you know, in aggregate, if we're looking at the S&P 500 or the American economy or the yield rates that are out there, uh, it seems to be kind of a nice consolidation of how is business in America looking versus how is the market valuing uh, those fundamentals in any kind of final thoughts or, you know, as you conducted this fantastic white paper, anything that investors should be thinking about as we as we move forward here?
0: Yeah, I think that just to sum up our research, uh, we did not find a single silver bullet indicator that you should you know keep up on your second screen at all times. However, we did note that, you know, combining things like the Buffett indicator and those yield spreads. Uh, If you can consider all of those, uh, you know, as you're going throughout your your year or considering your decisions, uh, that combines what we saw as great components of both the market and the economy into into your decision making. I think, as you noted, looking at individual companies, we obviously just looked at the market as a whole, but I think it would be wise for investors to think about, you know, this uh, stock, this company that I'm considering investing in. Is it one that's typically above or below the market average valuations? And then maybe uh, by looking at the market level valuations, that can give you uh, a good clue as to wherever this business is in terms of sector or industry and the economy and, and the economic cycle, um, are its valuations you know, concerning or attractive right now relative to what I'm seeing with the market as a whole?
1: Fantastic, Connor. And if we wanted to read your white paper up on charts uh, what would be the link or the URL that we could use to get there?
0: Yeah, it would be go.ycharts.com slash leading dash indicators. And I'm sure we can get that listed, but go.ycharts.com slash leading and then dash indicators.
1: Perfect. And we will put a link to that URL up on the podcast here with 7investing. Once again, Connor Kitko is YCharts Director of Product Marketing. Connor, this is a lot of fun. Thanks for chatting with me on the 7investing podcast.
0: Thanks a ton, Simon, and, and good luck with the rest of the year.
1: Absolutely. Good luck to everyone who's listening to this program. We appreciate you joining in for this time around. Uh, my name's Simon Erickson. Once again, we are 7investing. It's our mission to empower you to invest in your future. Have a great day.